John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1302.mk0934, certificate number 27176, The Three Governors. The choice, she's a clear. Yeah, Abby O'Donnell, slave of the interest. Homer Stokes, soil of the little man. Ain't that right, little fella? He ain't lying. My favorite of all the opera records, The Three Governors. Do you like when The Three Governors sing, uh, sing an aria for you? Uh-huh. And, and who are they? It's the Three Blind Governors. It's Jesse Ventura. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Jeb Bush. Yeah. I love those guys. <laughs> amazing blend. Does Arnold sing? I've never heard Arnold sing. Gotta be. He's a, he's, he's he's a triple threat, right? He, he must yodel. He can ice skate. He's a triple threat. <laughs> he, can, he can't act. So what are the no, three threats? No. He can deadlift. Deadlift. Uh, uh, govern. And yodel. And yodel. Those are the, those are the big three. Mm-hmm. We're, we are kind of living in a golden age of governors right now. We hmm. should we should explain to to the non, golden age of governors. Non-Americans either of the future or now. That uh, America is still in some ways 50 tiny little warring fiefdoms. Right. Uh, Definitely 15 warring regions. But yeah, the states are... Do you do you have a number? You 15? You you kind of have in mind what the 15 regions are? Or do you think it's roughly 15? Oh, yeah. Between, between what, 6 and 15, right? If you, if you think, right. of, think of the West Coast, you think of the, the uh, Western states, you think of the Plains states... Yankee land, Middle West. Really bound together by mutual hatred. Southern land. Oh, and then Appalachia, the worst of all states. So the worst of all regions. So I'm at, I'm at seven there. And then you've got like uh, the, the, the Southwest, you know, the Spanish states and then whatever Florida is. So yeah, eight. Let's it call it eight. Might be more. Eight or nine. And uh, Canada, whatever With that culturally is. maybe more dividing them than... Uniting them at this point, and uh, in the power vacuum left by the absence of a competent federal government mm. in some of the some of the recent crises, uh, governors have really had to step up because they've been told to. Yeah, because Washington, which is long discouraged state level power, is now saying your pandemic is your problem. You're talking about Washington D.C. when you say Washington, yes, not sorry. our glorious state. No, I of Washington. say I say Washington State yeah, for Washington right. State, and maybe I shouldn't because I'm here. 
No, you can just say Cascadia or <laughs> uh, or Ecotopia. Uh, do you call it Ecotopia? <laughs> I used to. I had a jacket made at the university bookstore embroidered Ecotopia across the back. And I wore it in the early 90s, but I was always a little self-conscious of it. Right, and rightly so. <laughs> and then, but I spent money on it. You know, I had it done. And then uh, I, I knew some kid that loved it, just like coveted my Ecotopia jacket. And so I traded it to him for an eighth of weed for or drugs. something. Yeah. Boo. Well, you know, he's hopefully still got it. He still I, got the jacket and you still got the weed for I, sure. I definitely, I have the memories of the weed. <laughs> I, d- I doubt very much you do. I'm almost certain you don't. <laughs> I have the general memories of the era of the weed. Uh, the, uh, so as a result, governors have kind of stepped into the spotlight. Like I can name 20 U.S. governors now. And be- right. And before coronavirus, did you know who Governor Pritzker was? Did you know who Gretchen Whitmer was? I could not have named more than five U.S. governors. I did, but you know, I'm a fanboy. Have you ever met a governor? I met Washington Lieutenant Governor uh, Cyrus Habib right. a couple months ago. Cyrus is a wonderful guy, but he's no longer the Lieutenant Governor. Uh, he is, uh, for, I believe he was maybe Washington's leading blind Iranian-American Correct. state-level politician. Correct. Or at least Washington's leading blind Persian politician who wanted to be a Jesuit. Correct. Correct. And, uh, the, you know, the appeal of the Jesuits, I cannot uh, overstate. We, we talk about them all the time. He is, by the way, I just checked, he is still our sitting lieutenant governor, even though he's announced oh. he's on his way. But that was not a resignation, apparently. Oh, oh, I it, see. It may be effective Jay's next term, effective Governor Inslee's next term. I see. He is going to have to uh, find a different politician, possibly a blind Iranian-American, possibly not. We don't have a – there's not a, a – test for that. Cyrus uh, is beloved in the Washington State, uh, the wet Western Washington State Democratic <laughs> Party, uh, and really was seen as a comer, you know, and became lieutenant governor at a, at a very young age. He's an extremely gifted politician, but decided to pursue the life of the cloth and cloister. It doesn't happen in our day and age. No. And it's not really part of the Persian tradition either. So it's <laughs> very few, fascinating. Very few Jesuits in Tehran. But have you never met Jay Inslee? It I, seems like Jay is at every cocktail party, but I guess you're not at every cocktail party. I am party. famously not at every cocktail party. Uh, no, I don't think I've even ever been in the room with him. Huh, interesting. He's tall? Is that right? He's tall. He's a big man. Uh, he's, you know, he's my size, tall, both tall and broad. Um, and also a, a very, you know, he has that thing that politi- the good politicians have, which is just like, wait, he's got magnetism. He's got a good voice. He's and it turned out I don't I don't like any of that because you really see why people get power. Oh yeah, it's like oh hey, this guy's uh, chin was better than uh, that other guy. Yeah, or, it's, or, the, it's the big man theory of of local politics. There's, but you, there's no way that is actually producing the best leadership. Before coronavirus, Jay was a semi-effective Washington state governor, and I think was he was regarded not as a lightweight, but. He was not seen as a heavy hitter. He had a big national profile for trying to advance uh, environmental issues during the election, he during ran, the pr- Democratic primary. He ran for president during the primary and Very I Very unsuccessfully. Unsuccessfully, but he gained a lot of stature because he really stuck to his guns and made environmentalism the the, the soul of his platform. And so I think he he uh, a lot of people recognized that he was he was a pretty effective guy still on the you know as Washington state governors go kind of like I, I'm not going to say middle of the pack, but but um, 
I'm I'm unfortunately like too inside the Washington State Democratic Party, so get all the you know the whisper. The whisper stuff about like who the who the real cool kids are. Well, it's time to start telling the future about all the dirt you have on uh, on Governor Inslee. Well, what happened was Inslee stood up to Trump super hard around the coronavirus, and now he's like the he's he's, he's the, a he's, knight with a flaming he's sword. He's a poster boy. He goes on Meet the Press and Face the Nation right after the Trump uh, Trump or the Trump surrogates and says. This guy's a bozo. Yeah, and all of a sudden, like, and I've always liked him. I think he's a like a like a a really nice guy and a cool and a good governor. But uh, but now he's like a national figure. Super exciting. Gavin Newsom follows me on Twitter. Does that count as having met a governor? No. Um, you haven't met him. But he follows me on Twitter. Isn't that better than meeting somebody? I've met no. so many more people than. Well, that's actually not true. No. No, when you have as many followers as I do, that's not true anymore. Oh God, you're so insufferable. But it's uh, although I'm the one sitting here talking about the governor as though he and I are super tight. Well, <laughs> when you're as inside as I am, Ken, uh, it's just that we know all these Midwestern governors now yeah. because they've really gotten not just Inslee; they've all kind of had platforms, and some have done very well. I was reading about how uh, at the time the uh, pandemic started in Michigan. Governor Whitmer and uh, the president both had similar kind of underwater approval ratings. They were both, I don't know, 45% approval or something. And due to her, uh, what's what was widely seen as, uh, as, as bold, decisive leadership, she is now has something like 65% approval rating. Yeah. And Trump could have too, if he had done anything, anything you know, people, right. people love to flock around the big man in a crisis. Well, Cuomo, was definitely in the newspapers a lot, and I feel like there was a while there where his response was getting two thumbs up from all the Eberts, and then uh, then the tide shifted. He, on he him. became a national figure because he because he, he was giving daily briefings on a pandemic that was people were scared of, and, and the president was nowhere on. But today, in, today in Michigan, yeah, I think you're right that uh, Cuomo's had some backlash. But yeah. in um, in Michigan. Uh, you know, Whitmer's now at some kind of 65% approval rating and Trump is like below 40 and all he had to do was do what she had done. Right. Just give a daily briefing that didn't yep. sound like total insanity. Just to say that he maybe believed an epidemic existed or that the germ theory of medicine was real. Right. That he but, wasn't gargling with uh, with like window could, cleaner. That he could hold a glass of water yeah. with one hand. But th- these were things he was not capable of. But as a, a result- A lot of futurelings, of course, as we know, are across a broad spectrum of American politics, uh, both past, present, and future. Uh, but that does not stop us. But it's weird. How, but it's weird how none of them, even the conservatives, like Trump. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what are the odds? He's really ludicrous. <laughs> but but we, you know, there's a history of American governors stepping mm-hmm. forward, right? I mean, we no one would have known about Sarah Palin uh, based on how well she governed the state of Alaska, but she definitely became a national figure. That's when they become national figures. But there was a time when U.S. governors often, because of their own weird status in their own little fiefdoms, you could have a George Wallace or a Huey Long right. who became uh, a national figure without entering national politics, right. just by virtue of their unquestioned power and influence in their little corner of the nation. Uh, and I don't know if that's going to, I don't know if that's going to happen again or not. I assume this vacuum of federal power we're in is, is pretty temporary. I mean, I mean as, as you hear this, it might it might be about a month and a half away from ending. Isn't that the story of Mitt Romney's dad? Wasn't he, wasn't George Romney primarily known as a famous governor? I guess he, he, he dipped his toe into national politics. Yeah. He ran for, um, he ran for 
the presidency in 60. I was kind of a, even though he was a liberal Republican, he was the leading candidate for a while in 64. Is that right? Right. Before Goldwater surged. Yeah. He made the, Romney's the one who made the mistake of saying what he was brainwashed in Vietnam. Who the Goldwater was? (laughs) No. (laughs) Romney said that he, Romney, had been brainwashed by the military when he visited Vietnam. Oh, I guess this, I guess that was what ended his 68 campaign. It's not good to, it's not good to on the campaign trail, describe yourself as having been brainwashed in <laughs> Vietnam, regardless of what, what you're regardless talking of about. Who it is. <laughs> Almost. That's just a no go. No matter who's no, brainwashing you. No, even uh, now, but it's funny. Cause even at, you know, you would assume that the Mormon Republican candidate in, uh, in 68 would be, maybe bad on civil rights, for example, or other social justice issues. But no, he was a real, he was a real civil rights leader. Um, and I assume maybe that's, not leader, but yeah, right. He was on the right side of history. And no, I, I think you, I think you would be surprised looking back at, at what a, uh, at what an overt pro civil rights stance he took. And I often think that's what's in the back of Mitt's mind today when he makes lonely Republican votes against for impeachment or whatever. You've, you've, you've described it in the past as, that you that you feel like Mitt Romney can stand up to Trump because his base supports him. He knows that in Utah that stuff plays, and it's a it's a kind of little known fact in the United States. You think of Mormonism or as of Utah in particular as being a conservative place, but it's conservative some places and and pretty liberal or progressive in others. I looked at Mitt's numbers after the impeachment vote, and he did his his numbers did go down about. 10 points. Like there's enough, there's enough of a, of all a, those people on the wrong side of the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Southern rural Utah, but I guess there was a lot of people who, who saw the immediate partisan slant on wherever they get their news in Utah and felt Romney had, had betrayed the cause and it right. didn't last. It, his numbers were back up within about a month. But don't, don't most people in Utah get their news from Deseret TV? <laughs> DTV. (laughs) (laughs) The funny thing about Utah, I can't remember if I said this before, is they actually had a competitor, the local, uh, I think NBC affiliate in Salt Lake actually got out in front of free want ads when the internet was very new. So Craigslist never caught on in Utah because one of the TV affiliates was running great free want ads on the internet. So to this day, you know, 25 years later in Utah, people will say, hey, you're going to put that on KSL? Are you going to KSL that or can, are you going to give it to me? Wow. Like give it- KSL is now a verb for Craigslist. In Utah in the great only. Sta- in the great state of Utah only. Wow. I know there are a lot of futurelings that want me to take a harder line on Utah, but, uh, you know, just as a, just as a uh, counter balance to you. But, uh, I, I am not from nor loyal to Utah. Well, me either. I just did a... Com- <laughs> this is why we're friends. This is what we have in common. Neither of us have any loyalty to Utah. I just did 40 minutes on this show about how weird Utah billboards are. I think I think my position is clear. Um, but perhaps no uh, no gubernatorial weirdness was as weird uh, of these little fiefdoms. Was as weird. And a lot of these, you know, Huey Long, George Wallace, a lot of these people were... Southern governors, and that's—I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. That's a part of the country that's historically resisted right. federal power and this influence. Is the, their whole states' rights, uh, like uh, the 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 what, what, what? I guess it's a a byproduct of it that if you're going to assert that your state has uh, like preeminence, Sov- sovereignty, sovereignty, yeah. like who's your who's your state leader? It's got to be your governor. Well, it would be the governor. Right. So this this tradition of this uh, kind of southern demagogue slash 
you know, quasi-authoritarian, quasi-autocrat ruling for the governor's mansion was very much a real thing. And uh, in July 1946, in the great state of Georgia, uh, birthplace of Omnibus, but also That's some right. other things that are not as great as Omnibus. That's right. Um, other things that are arguably better than Omnibus. Uh, a, man, <laughs> a politician named Gene Talmadge won the Democratic primary. He was a former governor of Georgia, and he won the Democratic primary. And this was the era of the solid South, which meant that Republican candidates had no chance at statewide office in many Southern states. And in this case, as it turned out in 46, the Republicans did not even field a candidate for the uh, governorship of Georgia. This so, is this is the old, the old Democrats versus yes. the old Republicans, not what we think of as the new Democrats versus the new Republicans. This is the Dixiecrat era. We have given this lecture before. Yes. But yes, at the time, the Republicans were the party of civil rights and in a lot of ways, the industrialized North. Uh, Democrats All were, they wanted was low taxes. Democrats were a regional party, and one of those regions that they reliably controlled was the South, um, where by virtue of long memories of the Civil War and the abolitionist policies of Republicans uh, before the war and then during Reconstruction. Are you reading this from a three-by-five card? Is this just our standard disclaimer now? <laughs> yeah, this, this, this is what we say every time Every time a lousy Democrat shows up. Every time a Democrat who's a Klan member shows up on the show, yeah. we have to read this. Uh, so, you know, par party realignment took place with the Southern strategy of, uh, uh, what's his name? The, well, the his Republican fixer who just died and uh, and on his deathbed said, uh, I, I uh, what did he say? I, I, I killed Kennedy or, uh, yeah. or whatever I, he said. I, I came, I saw, I conquered. Why can I, why can I not remember the name of the guy who just died? Rince Priebus. It was not Rince Priebus, but it was Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater, yes. Who realized that he could guarantee, uh, you know, if, if, if he could switch conservative Democrats to voting for their- Nixon's Southern strategy. Their ideological uh, allies across the aisle, if he could overcome the, the heritage arguments against voting Republican, right. then he could guarantee Republican hegemony for the rest of the 20th century, and it worked pretty well. Because Johnson lost the South with the Civil Rights Act, 1965. Which good for him, you know, like... Hey, there it is. We forgive him for Vietnam. <laughs> uh, I guess... We should, just, we should just cut this out of this episode and just put it on a reel. So whenever we talk about the South, we can just play that little, that little bit. And, we don't have to say it again. And it was because he knew Kennedy was going to do it, right? Like, I don't know if it's... it's uh, he, must, he must have genuinely... I mean, he must have genuinely thought it was the right thing. He sure. did, but, but Kennedy there, but could there have done have, it. There must have been some sense that uh, as a martyr, this was his, this would, would, should have been Kennedy's legacy, there's and, and some, he was going to carry it on. There's some speculation that only Johnson could have done it, because he had... And that's why Kennedy killed himself. He had all the good old <laughs> Cleverly. boys. Uh, he had the... You know, they all were spitting tobacco on each other, and they spoke the same sort of corn pone language and here we are well we are 20 almost 20 years earlier where it's a it's a very different south and it's about as lousy as you think all of three of the governors articular governors here are segregationists mm -hmm. but gene is a uh, on a whole different level he's gene a, gene, gene the the the, the, the machine, machine? <laughs> no this is gene gene the racist machine oh, gene talmadge uh a former governor of georgia who has won the 1946 primary he is uh, the voice of rural, he's the populist voice of rural Georgia. He says, I can win any county where they ain't got no streetcars. Yeah. 
It's <laughs> pretty good, right? Yeah, pretty darn good. He rode to office in a uh, what Washingtonian Washington State um, residents will recognize as a Tim Imanian uh, uh, gambit of three dollar car tabs. Was it really three dollar car tabs? Three dollar car tabs. That was who that, knew that, the car tabs the gambit was such a like long standing one. Goes goes back to the uh, goes back to nineteen thirties and Talmadge's first term. You know because then. Middle class people could start to afford cars, right? If the uh, if the registration was cheap, uh, car registration is a way that state governments find a kind of backdoor tax opportunity without taxing, without actually having tax. You you, you, you staple some of those fees into car registration, and it and it funds you know, roads and other stuff. But it's a popular uh, it's a popular talking point for anti government people. And our own Washington State's Tim Einman is one of these uh, car tabs guys who's become famous, and he's also totally corrupt. And well, he's also famous for stealing pathetic. stealing chair office chairs from uh, from yeah. a Bellevue office depot or mm-hmm. Staples or something. He's pretty greasy. Uh, if you have if you if you are an attorney for Tim Einman, please write us at Ken at the Omnibus Project. <laughs> who's going to have deeper pockets, <laughs> me or John? Come on, <laughs> think of all those think of all those album revenues. Uh, so Gene Talmadge is very much a Southern demagogue straight out of, uh, Oh brother, where art thou or whatever. He, uh, although he's a Democrat, he hates Democrat who he hates FDR. Sure. Uh, he's skeptical of, of these make work programs like the WPA. They got streetcars up there. Uh, <laughs> he's from the streetcar part of the democratic party. Uh, his particular beef with the WPA is not just that it will, um, Make you think as a populist, he would love the idea of work for his poor constituents, but unfortunately, Roosevelt's offering some of these jobs to black people, mm-hmm. and Talmadge is not crazy about the idea of uh, black people getting well-paying jobs from the federal government. No, he's not against them working, just not getting paid well. <laughs> he's he's not against them working in his house. In fact, he said this is this is um, jumping ahead a little, but later I believe in that same. 1946 campaign, he said, uh, in Georgia, we love the Negro in his place, and his place is at the back door. Oh, dear. So we're going to hear some some pretty lousy things yeah, from, from Governor alert. Talmadge here, and I apologize for all of them, but it's going to get worse. These are not, uh, the, the omnibus does not endorse Governor Talmadge's platform or any of his words. You'd think that would be clear, but we do get letters saying, hey, you guys mentioned uh, the Trail of Tears and you didn't say it was bad. So if just for the record, we think the Trail of Tears was bad. If you don't like this kind of talk, even in a historical uh, review, maybe it's time to switch over to uh, the dollop <laughs> at this point. Because Ken is going to read some quotes. The quotes will not have the N word, and I don't know if the I, I don't know if the dollop will or not. I can't I can't guarantee. No, no, almost certainly they won't. You think they will use the N word? I don't think they will use the N word. What if they did? I would be surprised, but also not surprised because they're two middle-aged white comedians. So <laughs> who knows what the what their restrictions are. When the microphones are. are off. No, we love the dollop. Uh, when I mentioned um, Talmadge's animus toward FDR, his his preferred model, he said, for, for creating work was that of uh, uh, an idol he had recently discovered, Benito Mussolini. Oh, he yeah. He loved Mussolini's Italy. He loved the idea that you could just line up people and someone with guns could make them work. Oh, sure. And the trains. What did he, they do, Ken? They do run on time. Yeah. If uh, Unless there's confusion and delay. 
from Thomas or Percy. Uh, a lot of his, there's some, there's a really more than a flirtation with fascism in Talmadge. In 1936, he takes some heat when an LA newspaper asks him what he likes to read, and he says he doesn't read much. And they've asked him if he's read Mein Kampf, and he says he's read it seven times. <laughs> he doesn't read much, but but when he does, well, the thing about when he mein, finds something he likes. The thing about Mein Kampf is, oh, the prose. And it's such a page turner. Yeah, right. I mean, Hitler was such a stylist. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a warm blanket crawling into those sentences. Oh, oh, his 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 language, even in translation. In 1934, when there was a uh, textile strike up and down the eastern seaboard, uh, he put the striking cotton workers of Georgia in uh, leftover World War I uh, prison camps behind barbed wire. And imposed oh. martial law in the state. Oh. This was the kind of thing that a, a Georgia governor could just do, and people would be like, oh, Governor Talmadge with his martial law again. Down there in Georgia, something's happening. He hated FDR so much that in 1936, he actually mounted a primary challenge to an incumbent president and got a lot of the kind of the Klan wing of the Democratic Party behind him. He had... Thomas Dixon, the guy who wrote the book's Birth of a Nation, was based on right. uh, You know the heroic kind of the heroic clan guy, a super, you know, one of the best-selling novelists of a super racist time, <laughs> uh, you know, got him to endorse him and, uh, and, you know, said, you know, this is the same time he's saying admiring things about Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, and again, he, he, he ended up opposing U.S. entrance to World War II, partially because of his deep love for the other side, right? but also because he didn't want black soldiers coming home uh, thinking that they had accomplished anything or had achieved any kind of stature in society. Uh, that's, that's, that's the nightmare of the segregationist South. Right. That the, that one day, all the promises that the military has traditionally made to black soldiers, they would actually honor. And that would create a real problem. Well, this is the segregated military too. And at, at a time when a lot of the boot camps were in the South and you had, uh, you had like black soldiers from the North, ending up on these trains that as soon as they crossed that Mason-Dixon line, there was, it was a whole different can of worms. That's why a lot of them ended up staying, right? That's why, that's why France had a Paris had a better jazz scene than, uh, than any other city on earth because, uh, it was less awful there. How are you going to keep them down on the, uh, uh, down on the prison camp? No kidding. Um, none of this on the national stage, none of this went anywhere for Talmadge. You know, the, the, the poor white sharecroppers who were his, People also just loved FDR. So he was never going to get anywhere. Because of pork belly politics. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but in 1940, but, you know, but it didn't stop him from doing this awful race stuff. And, you know, the Klan would throw banquets for him. In 1940, he actually lost the governor's mansion um, because of a race-related scandal at the University of Georgia. A dean at the university system had proposed integrating classrooms. Huh. And in the thirties, uh, 1940. Yeah. This is, this is, you know, very early for that kind of thinking. And it was probably about as popular as you expect among white Georgians. But, uh, Talmadge put up a huge, uh, hissy fit. And in fact was willing to shut the universities down rather than integrate the classrooms. In the end, the university of Georgia system lost its national accreditation. Wow. Uh, and so a generation of young Georgians turned on Talmud. Students hated him. He couldn't ha- hold rallies in Athens. Um, and that's how he lost 
the governorship in 1940? Yeah, he ran against another guy named Ellis Arnold, who is, uh, even though we remember him as a liberal Democrat of that period, um, at this time he was a strict, just as strict a segregationist, and realized, as he said, that there's no way he could beat Governor Talmadge in the N-word hating race, right? Which is, I guess is how you got white votes in Georgia in the sure, 40s. Sure. How are you going to how are you going to beat him in the N-word hating race? Uh, and by race, he means competition. Yes, not, competition. Not that it, that it's an entire race. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so instead, he pushed back on the the university thing and said he had hurt. Uh, the educational system in Georgia, and thereby the future of a whole generation of young Georgians. And so he managed to win based on the fact that I'm going to I'm going to fix uh, Governor Talmadge's mess in the university system. And uh, as Talmadge's as Talmadge lost office, he began to drink rather heavily. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he ran for re-election in 1946, um, his health was failing. Mm-hmm. He spent much of the campaign actually in a hospital in. Um, Jacksonville, Florida. So he wasn't even in the state for much of the race. An interesting thing about FDR, the reason why the sharecroppers loved FDR is because he spent all this time down there. He spent all that time in Warm Springs for his health. So Georgians, he spent a lot of time with Georgians and they liked him. Um, He's a likable guy. He is. Uh, It should be noted to futurelings that maybe uh, missed this or maybe even presentlings that the 1920s and 30s was a period of a great resurgence in the popularity of the Klan, the Confederacy. A lot of the statues, the Confederate statues that we're now talking about taking down out of these southern um, town squares were erected during this period. They didn't actually, they, they weren't contemporaneous with the Civil War at all. They were part of this strange resurgence in the Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, although it was formed immediately after the Civil War, it had its largest popularity in the 1930s. It had up to 4 million members, including Donald Trump's father. And even though this is just uh, a decade later, uh, still that is the way to win Georgia. As, as, uh, as Ellis Arnold said, the, the racism race, right. essentially. Uh, so on the stump, uh, Talmadge would brag about uh, flogging his family's um, black sharecroppers. As oh, a kid, that was a thing to uh, that was thing he bragged about. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you know, occasionally you hear Trump or Biden doing that now, but it, it's when they're really <laughs> off script. He would brag about um, chasing a, a black man down the street with an axe because he saw him made a make a um, a pass at a white woman. Uh-huh. I mean, all these tropes of uh, of fiction were straight up campaign campaign promises or campaign posters, right? At, at the time, and the funny thing is, if you look at a picture of Gene Talmadge. He looks like an educated, I mean, maybe the accent would change your mind, but he looks like Atticus Finch. He's uh-huh. like a handsome guy with round glasses. Uh, you know, he just That's looks how like, they get you. He looks like a small town lawyer with, you know, putting his thumb in his suspenders. And he's a virulent, virulent racist. It, it, it gets even worse. Uh, in 1946, the same year as the election we're about to describe, in which Talmadge won the primary, uh, there was a famous set of lynchings in rural Georgia uh, in 1944, the Supreme Court heard a case on whether or not state primaries should have to be integrated. Uh-huh. There had been a test case in Texas, which had a white, on, a white, a whites only primary, and then a, a, a black a, a primary for black people. And the Supreme Court ruled that primaries had to be integrated, and this became a huge, uh, a huge political um, scandal in the South. Weirdly, 
<laughs> I wonder why Still they. Would, I wonder why they wouldn't have wanted that. Yeah. Today. Luckily, all that stuff got fixed by the Voting <laughs> Rights Act, which we can no longer enforce. Um, and uh, Talmadge needed the votes of a you know kind of one of his standby rural districts, Walton County, and uh, two uh, two black couples uh, had been lynched in the sense that they'd been they'd been shot on a rural road uh, after one of them had been accused of a stabbing. One of them was a veteran of World War II. Uh, it, it really captured the national attention, this this terrible lynching. And Truman tried to get anti-lynching civil rights legislation passed, and the FBI spent four months investigating the case. Uh, it was the first civil rights case the FBI ever looked at. Hmm. This was like the beginning of, of the federal government trying to trying to stop a, a century or more of lynching in the South. And uh, in fact, the FBI agents investigating it told J. Edgar Hoover that there were local allegations in Walton County that Gene Talmadge himself had led the mob Whoa. that shot these four African-Americans. Whoa. And if not, had certainly... Egged them on. Yeah, had certainly egged on his people in Walton County, um, that, you know, that he was behind the thing. And as late as the FBI reopened this, and it was actually investigating this as late as December 2017 as a cold case and still was never able to to bring charges. Um, What the Duke boys didn't know. So this guy, like, this is a a favorite for governor who is literally, possibly, shooting poor black Georgians. Like, he's literally lynching people. Yeah. he loses the popular vote in 1946, but luckily there's some weird electoral college system whereby he wins the county unit votes. And mm. because he's a pop, he's a you know he's a popular figure in these less populated counties, that's enough to win the elect the primary. Even though he's he lost the vote, but he won the technicality vote. Yes, essentially, basically, the governor of Georgia is not elected by the popular vote in 1946, just like the U.S. president is not today. And so, even though he's in a sick bed in in Jacksonville, Florida, he he wins the primary. Unfortunately, in December 1946, December of that year, just three weeks before he is due to be inaugurated, uh, and and once again, oh, so he won. He actually won the the he won the primary, and there is no general because the Republicans field no candidate. Oh, oh. It's such a solid South moment that there's not even a Republican on the ballot. So in December 1946, unchallenged, he's uh, he's just weeks away from taking office again when he dies of hepatitis and cirrhosis. He, he has drunk himself to death. And he lies in state at the Capitol building in Atlanta with a KKKK wreath on him. He's so re- racist, what is the, he gets an extra K. K? If, if you're super racist, you get awarded a fourth K. Ku Klux Clan, Ku Klux Klan, Klux Klaxon. It's Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. It's tricky because it's a silent K. And you'd think they wouldn't be able to spell that, those guys. Knights of the Canoe Knucks. Uh, How fascinating. I mean, I don't usually on this show exhibit a lot of, like... Interest in anything I say. uh, No, that's only 50% true. But no, the, uh, (laughs) the, um, I don't have, I don't, I don't, like, display a lot of schadenfreude. I don't, I don't ever celebrate when one of our... When one of our cast members or one of our our subjects dies, especially not of cirrhosis. But in this case, I don't know. We're I don't, not, not going to shed a tear for. I didn't feel too good about him. And the thing about cirrhosis is that's a terrible way to die. To die of drunkenness is awful, and uh, it's not like some passive thing where you just drink your booze and, and sluffle off to sleep. 
It's well, a thing it, where your body shuts down on you. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, maybe the wreath just covered, covered up his bloated and <laughs> pox-ridden corpse. I started wearing Mac Weldon earlier this year, John, which yeah. I, know, I know you've worn their, their socks and underwear for quite some time. Yeah, that's good gear. But they make. Did you know they make other stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you were wearing a, like a like a their storm chaser jacket or something. I you? got a sweater and I got a Henley, and it's been months and months, and they both just seem brand new. Yeah, which is not true of most of my other cheap crap. Yep, it's good gear. I mean, yeah, it's a lot good of quality your clothes stuff. seems like it. It seems like something you got at Costco when you bought a gallon of peanuts. That's because that is exactly what I wear. <laughs> which mean and all my other clothing have like faded on my rack while my the the mac weldon stuff i got uh is still in beautiful shape they yeah. just they just use good quality fabrics and it's a it's a nice brand it's noticeable on you when you're wearing your mac weldon stuff you can tell yeah you know it's like it's uh it's it's a slick kind of kind of garment uh and that's in addition to their industry leading underwear right and that's that's kind of where i um where mac weldon has gradually taken over my life. All of my underwear and socks are Mack Weldon. And if it was some kind of Manchurian candidate situation where my underwear one day rose up and uh, took control of my life, I would be powerless. And I don't have a pair of champion underwear or something to go to go save myself. You would just have to go commando. Yeah. Like in the like in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Commando. Yeah, that's right. That's the movie about that's how he does from. not wear Mack Weldon underwear. And as a result, he goes through a lot of Really, just terrible experience, family experiences. But I like underwear with a little bit of flair. Um, I like their silver thread underwear. They have all kinds of, um, you know, they have they have your basic color underwear, but they also have stripy ones and 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 you know, pretty flashy colors. I like them a lot. The silver thread's not just uh, a gimmick. Like silver is an antimicrobial. Yeah. So you'll 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 smell and feel better if if there's not silver in your underwear right now. Mm. What are you doing? With your life. There is silver in mine, so I know what I'm doing. And they also have silver threads in their socks. We have a, They have an amazing Some. loyalty program called Weldon Blue that really rewards uh, customers like you. John. Yeah, well, so it's really easy. You, you create an account, which is free to do, and then uh, you place an order for any amount, and there's no shipping. You for don't play for shipping. Free shipping forever as soon as you place any order. That's right. And then at the second level, once you purchase $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon, you're bumped up into level two. Uh, at the second level, Ken, you get not only free shipping, but 20% off all orders for the rest of the year. Plus, you hear, you're the first to hear about new products. They'll send you free gifts with your order. It's like, a, it's like an airline medallion status. Speaking of status, uh, if you go to MacWeldon.com, put your, um, you know, sign up for a free account and put in the promo code Omnibus, you'll get twenty percent off your first order from MacWeldon. That's MacWeldon.com/slash/Omnibus. It led to a huge legal problem. Georgia had just passed a new constitution the previous year. Uh, which, among other things, outlined for the first time that Georgia would have a lieutenant governor, right? something they had not previously had. How was the lieutenant governor chosen? Uh, it was also by election, but I think not on the same ticket. I mean, to this day, there are some states where the yeah, lieutenant- Yeah, separate. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not a ticket, like president, vice president. 
And I think that's how Georgia was. And uh, the re- one of the big reasons why you have a lieutenant governor is he Succession. constitutionally takes office if something happens. Unfortunately, the way the Georgian, the new Georgian state constitution had been written, it did not cover governors elect. So the new constitution left totally unclear what would happen. Because there was a sitting governor still. Yes. Governor, in fact, it's Ellis Arnold, uh, Talmadge's political opponent. Right. Who's still sitting in the governor's mansion. And has a lieutenant governor himself. Uh, no, he did not have one. The new constitution had just taken effect. So there's an incoming lieutenant governor, uh, a Mr. M.E. Thompson. So the question becomes, should, even though the statute, even though the constitution doesn't say so, should the incoming lieutenant governor be elected governor? Does Governor Arnold stay governor? And in fact, he announces he is going to stay governor indefinitely until this gets worked oh, out. Oh, it's a constitutional crisis. Yes. And, or, and it gets, here's where it gets even weirder. Uh, there is apparently... Some statute, I don't think this is constitutional, I think this is in in Georgian law at the time, which says that in a case like this, you know, when a, a candidate is uh, dies at the primary level like this. Then it, it, then it switches to the Batman. Then it becomes Mothman. No, the second place finisher, the person who got the most, the person who got the, the basically the, the legislature then chooses between the two candidates who got the most votes. Whoa. And if one is dead, suddenly who got the most votes? Whoa. And who was the closest second runner-up or first runner-up? Talmadge's campaign manager is his KG 33-year-old son, Herman. Herman Talmadge. Who is a young up-and-comer who knows that his dad's liver is in terrible shape. Oh, he's, he foreseen it. So while he's, yeah, he, he for, he's seen it coming. Uh-huh. So while he's managing his dad's campaign, he's also asking all their, all their guys in all these precincts, hey, how many write-in votes do you think you can get for me? So he arranges to get a few hundred write-in votes just in case, because then if that statue is interpreted the way he thinks it is, and he's the only one of the top two guys who's breathing, maybe he has a case as well. Oh, what a good, this, this kid. He's got insurance. He does. So. What a player. So Arnold announces he will not leave the governor's mansion. Uh, Talmadge, who is well connected to all of his dad's old cronies, is. uh, Young Talmadge. Yes, Talmadge Jr., Herman Talmadge, is consolidating support among his dad's people. Right. And M.E. Thompson, lieutenant governor, is saying, it's got to be me. So lawsuits swirl. This becomes a media war where uh, nationwide, you know, this is making headlines. And now we're over the line. Uh, we're over what would have been Inauguration Day. Uh, inauguration Day is coming up, I think. Oh. January 14th, the, state's, the legislature spe- uh, schedules a special session to vote on what is going to happen, which of these three guys. And they've all got their, it's just like Bush Gore 2000. They've all got their teams on the ground there, working in parallel, trying to firm up their support. Um, On the night of January 14th, the legislature meets and it goes well into the night. Uh, Governor Arnold is still in the governor's office. Uh, Herman Talmadge is in the Speaker of the House's office. And M.E. Thompson, the incoming lieutenant governor, is in the president of the Senate's office, from which they are coordinating their respective attacks on the people of Georgia. Right. Everybody ordering pizza. Well, what they're ordering is booze. They all seem to have the same plan, which is to get the other guy's people drunk. Love it. So everybody's distributing free liquor, probably maybe in big corn liquor judges with uh, uh-huh. jugs with three X's. Yeah. See, this is when American politics really was fun. This, These is, days, when you, this is when you could get away with stuff so like this. boring. Uh... And so everybody's getting loaded. The sheriff is called because 
one of the candidates is accused of putting knockout drops. Whoa. In the booth. So Spanish some, fly? Well, some kind of, yeah, some kind of 1940s. <laughs> this this ro- party gets hotter and hotter. Rohypnol, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and all of this is happening in the uh, legislature building, right? The- yes. Everybody set up their camps in the, in the offices of the wow. state legislature, the Capitol building. Uh, it's like, uh, it's like Road Warrior 3 with Tina Turner. It's just like that. Three men enter, one man leave. It's what if Thunderdome, <laughs> but uh, nobody can read or write. It, yeah, it's like it's like the Mad Max future, but it's worse because it's Georgia in the 40s. Right. We're going to get letters. Yeah. We're, Listen, Georgia's a uh, fine state full of very progressive people. Just remember John making fun of Appalachia <laughs> earlier and send your letters to him. I please. wasn't even making fun. I was just straight up denigrating <laughs> So I, it's uh, one of them. I believe it's uh, Talmadge who has to set up a rehab hospital in the halls of the Capitol building to try to get his people sobered up. Um, one issue that has come up is that you have to be in second place in the primary voting to be considered under Herman Talmadge's loophole. And he only has 617 write-in votes, it turns out, which is not... Second place. It's not clearly second place. So even though he's gone to all this trouble. Who had more than 600 write-in votes? I don't know. Mickey Mouse? Uh Some other functionary, some other Democrat who had run had more than 617 write-in votes. But dramatically, that night, as the legislature is deliberating. He slipped uh, on a banana peel and died. I wish. No, even even more suspicious. 58 new write-in votes appear from Herman Talmadge's home county of Telfair County. That weren't counted in the in the ballot box of a month prior or two months prior? More than the primary was in July. Uh-huh. So we are now seven months later. And suddenly, 58 votes, just enough to put him over the line, have appeared in his home county. Wow. So after hours, rah, of, rah. After hours of parliamentary maneuvers, uh, by which all, in which all three of the, part of the Democrats and their loyalists kind of jockey for power, uh, a vote is finally called. And because uh, the legislature can decide it, they're, yeah, they're going to decide. And the 58 new votes are enough to to clearly put Herman in second place. They agree that that law holds. They have to choose one of the top two finishers. And at 2 a.m., Herman Talmadge is elected by the legislature, governor of Georgia, and he gives an impromptu speech from in front of the Capitol and heads up to Governor Arnold's office, where to boot him out. Yes. Arnold and his people have literally barred the door, and he refuses to leave his office. He considers this a coup. Wow. And what? And, and where is our lieutenant governor-elect at this point? He is still in the Senate president's office. He is— uh, Too drunk to move. <laughs> I can only assume. <laughs> He's been left out here. He doesn't have home court advantage, and he doesn't have the legislature vote. Things are not looking good for, uh, for Lieutenant Governor M.E. Thompson—incoming Lieutenant Governor M.E. Thompson— so fights break out in the hallway when Arnold refuses to open his door. Uh, a jaw is broken. Uh, back when f- back when legislators could really throw a punch. Furniture is smashed. Uh, it really becomes Charles Sumner is caned. The whole <laughs> the whole thing. But dogs and cats sleeping together. No holds are barred. Uh, finally, uh, the door is broken down. Herman Talmadge takes over Governor Arnold's office. Arnold sets up a desk on the rotunda of the Capitol. Huh. 
and uh, in the rotunda of the Capitol. Yes, yeah, sorry. In yes, the under the dome. Right. He he sets up his own desk, which not, is not typically where you put a desk. No, and it's kind of a ludicrous situation. And he claims that this is the legitimate governor's office is now here, and the uh-huh. pretender uh-huh. has taken over his office. He's, and then he's, he's Talmadge is like taking his pictures off the walls and putting up his own pictures. Uh, he's got his own guys there, uh, and Talmadge starts bringing a Smith and Wesson thirty eight to the governor's office every day because he doesn't know who's going to come charging into his office. Now, how can anyone, coup or not, how can anyone claim that the legislature doesn't have the power to solve this problem? Right. It's it's within the purview of the legislature to make this call. Nobody else could, right? Right. Uh, Arnold is really banking on the fact that he had possession of the room. That's right. that's his best case at the moment. Like 58 fake votes or no, um, it, he doesn't even have control of the room anymore. But the fact that, you know, there must be a problem with popular opinion. If a guy who just got 617 write-in votes is now the is governor. suddenly now the governor, right? Uh, mostly on the strength of his last name. You can see why that's not a great claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for the next 63 days, Georgia essentially has three people claiming to be its legitimate governor. Oh, because the lieutenant governor-elect didn't just pack up his bags and say, I'm third in this race, I'm going home. Soon in the, this is what, if you've ever seen a reality show, you know what's going to happen next. An alliance. Governor, ex, oh. for outgoing Governor Arnold uh, agrees that Emmy Thompson should be his successor. Because he's the guy who has my vote. Just because it wasn't, uh, just because they hadn't clarified, it seems like the it seems like incoming it lieutenant governor. It should be governor or governor-elect, right? Right. right. Um, and so those two form an alliance. So it's either going to be Talmadge or it's going to be this Arnold-Thompson uh, block. The problem is that they are... Uh, they're jockeying for power inside the Capitol building. You know, it's just like a coup. One of them will uh, seize the other's furniture. Somebody else will take over the building switchboard. Uh-huh. Uh, it really is like trying to take the airfields and the, uh-huh. you know, who, who's got the airport, who's got the barracks, who's got the embassies. Operation Valkyrie. And they each have their own militias, interestingly. Oh, I like this even To better. surround government buildings. Uh, World War, during World War II, Georgia has sent its National Guard to Europe to fight in the war. Right. And in the absence of that, they've created a, a new organization called the State Guard, which is going to fill in. Now, the National Guard came home from Europe in 45. But the State Guard didn't disband. They never disbanded the State Guard. So now there are two competing militias. Uh, Herman Talmadge has the loyalty of the National Guard, but outgoing Governor uh, Arnold and Thompson, I guess, have the State Guard. Ha-ha. So they, they each have a militia helping them to surround different government buildings and uh-huh. say, well, I've got the health department now. Oh, yeah. The Secretary of State, uh, eager to uh, to see this the controversy and actually withholds the seal, the state seal, from either governor. This is the thing that they didn't, they didn't foresee, right? It's the seal. Without the seal, how do you pass a law? How what do you, can you do? You don't have the seal, man. So the Secretary of State hides it in his wheelchair. Oh, yeah. The Secretary of State is in a wheelchair with a hidden compartment. That's what you want. Where he puts the seal. So nobody can stamp any new laws. Oh, it's great. chaos. Three cases, uh, re- not not one, but three cases re- revolving around the the squabble hit different Georgian courts. And the two lower courts split over whether Arnold Thompson or Herman Talmadge 
should be, you know, which is the correct gubernatorial ticket. I guess now that I think about it, I mean, Thompson's guaranteed the lieutenant governor spot either way. Oh, is that right? Well, he, he would be the incoming lieutenant ele- governor. It's an elected position. If not- it's a separately elected position, mm. right? Um, but he's decided to throw in with Arnold. Uh, one thing that happens in a few weeks is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution investigates the 58 mysterious write-in votes from Telfair County and finds that uh, what was not reported on the night of the special session, which was they are all in the same handwriting. And they are all signed <laughs> Talmadge. No, they're all in alphabetical order, uh, ending beginning with A and ending with K, which apparently is the point of the alphabet in which they had enough votes to, to jump into second place. So an enterprising reporter from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution heads to Telfair County, tries to interview all these people, finds out they are dead, moved, mm-hmm. never vote, mm-hmm. never heard of Herman Talmadge. This is why we need an independent press. This is why you can't tax the rich. Because you take away their power to produce... Steal elections. To produce dead signatures, right. sure. So it turns out that Herman Talmadge never even should have been uh, in second place in the primary. Which and, I think we all knew. When the 58 votes turned up. Um, But so after, uh, and that considerably weakens his claim. And when it goes to the Georgian Supreme Court to to unlock this uh, deadlock between the two lower courts, one of whom is found in favor of each candidate, the Supreme Court finds in favor of uh, M.E. Thompson, in fact, whom Arnold has has endorsed. The incoming lieutenant governor will... uh, serve kind of a provisional term before new elections can be held. A full term or just the term long enough to, to stage new elections? No, he's only given a two-year term. So he gets kind of this special shortened provisional term, um, you know, with new primaries to be held. And uh, these state laws are still weird to this day. Yeah. You know, it happens every time somebody dies in Congress or vacates a seat by moving into an administration position, suddenly the governor has weird powers. And it it varies by state. They might have to pick someone from the same party or they might not. Um, You know, Ted Stevens, uh, the long-serving senator from Alaska, was appointed to the position initially by the governor when when, uh, the senator Ernst Greening died in a plane crash and then went on to win whatever, 20 more elections, right? Uh, that actually did happen to Herman Talmadge. He, he came sweeping back and, uh, he always claimed he was not the one responsible for the, for, for the forged signatures that it must've been some, yes, they, it looks suspicious, but it must've just been some over-enthusiastic, sure. uh, supporter in that, in that precinct. And he later became, uh, a big, big name in Georgian politics, served in the U S Senate from 1957 to 1981. Whoa, Talmadge. I mean, I, I, I think I remember his name from that. Probably. Yeah, and he lived, he lived to 2002. He was the last survivor of the, of the three governors, Tontine, I guess. Huh. Uh, and uh, in fact, Ellis Arnold also, he lived long enough to challenge, to run for the governor of Georgia again in the 60s, where he ran against a young Jimmy Carter <laughs> in 1966, although they both lost to Lester Maddox. Uh, so Herman Talmadge went on to, you know, use his, the, the, the clout gained from this kind of shameful episode to become a leading, uh, Georgia politician. And he still continued to oppose civil rights. 
But until the end. Right until, you know, when he left the Senate in 1981, he was still no friend of the African-American voter. And who? what happened to M.E. Thompson? M.E. Thompson, the accidental governor of Georgia. The rightful governor of Georgia. Right. Uh, Who never ran for governor, but Uh uh, he was lieutenant governor for... What two months? Sixty days. Yeah, but but until the Supreme Court ruled in his favor, made it, making him governor for for a year and a half, uh, he became Talmadge's political nemesis and lost to him in gubernatorial and senatorial elections uh, well into the fifties before leaving politics and becoming a beekeeper, real estate developer in Valdosta, Georgia. Right. You you want everyone to become a beekeeper when they retire, but very few people actually do. Can that be? Actually documented. You said that only one in two hundred people hates potatoes, and I'd like to see the I'd like to see the uh, the actual figures. But I want to know how many people in retirement go on to become beekeepers. It's the same number, and weirdly, it's all the same people. Hmm. Everyone who hates potatoes goes on to retire and tend to their bees. That's your future. Well, I know what my platform is. What's your platform? I'm retiring. I hate potatoes, and I'm eating. Uh, and <laughs> from here on out, I'm keeping bees. And that concludes the three governors entry 1302.mk0934 certificate number 27176 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, it will probably be where all elections are adjudicated. It will probably be, uh, people will become governor of Georgia based on how many likes their posts get. And that will be just as reasonable as getting elected by the Klan or whatever it used to be. That sounds great to me. I mean, this is the the system we use in my house. Well, sure. And also you get 200,000 likes every time you fart in a glass on Twitter. My daughter will often say, Dad, you're not funny because 13-year-olds don't like dad jokes. She's not wrong. She's like, Dad, you're not funny. And I'm like, actually... There's about mm. there's about three hundred thousand people who think I am. Right. So. Also, thirteen year olds can't vote. Right. Right. Who cares what she thinks? Yeah, exactly. She certainly can't vote in our house, much less in the in the federal elections. Yeah, you'd get the mom vote and the grandmom vote, and uh, you you could run for any office in the country. Whereas I'd still be I I with all of my great policies and political acumen don't have the I just can't put the likes together. But luckily, I don't want any of those offices that I could that I could have just for the asking. Here's an idea. I'm like George Washington. I'm going, going back to my farm. Let's get you elected, and then at a certain point, you, right before you take office, get cirrhosis. You no, you just retire to your to your bees, and appoint me to uh, to your uh, to succeed. Don't you just want to be the Machiavellian schemer behind the throne? Don't you want to be the Ken Whisperer? What I want is to have a Machiavelli who whispers in my ear. You want to be the one wearing the sash. I do. You don't actually care about the power. You like the sash. I like the sash. Yeah. And the, the Machiavelli can, can manipulate me all he wants. And, and, uh, or actually, I hope it's a she. I hope it's a Machiavelliette who... Uh, a, a Cersei Lannister type. Yeah, who's, who, has the, who has the whole scheme and just, just manipulates me like a puppet. And I'm kind of the stuffed shirt that everybody thinks is... You're, you're Juan Perón. Yeah, I'm just full of, full of hot air. That just seems like such a great job. Until the coup d'etat, right? When I'm, when I'm when, strung when, up outside of the gas station. When everyone sees how unnecessary you are. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's not what I want. But it's good times until then. 
Well, anyway, uh, let's watch how all of this plays out um, on Twitter, at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, and everywhere else at Omnibus Project. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at, at John Roderick. Also, there's, uh, there's Omnibus Out of Context, which is a fun fan Instagram account. Have you seen or a Twitter. Twitter account? Twitter. Account. Have you seen Omnibus Chair Squeaks? No. That's a new. That's a new Twitter account. After every ev- episode of Omnibus comes out, it it says how many times your chair squeaked. Oh man, you're breaking the account right now. Usually, I don't have to work that hard, but I can't even tell if that's one long squeak or thirty short ones. Sounds like it. Sounds like a like. In the hold of Columbus's ships, <laughs> it's the, the hold of the Santa Maria. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail dot com. You can. How come hey, my chair doesn't do it? I'm, well, I want to do fully work for a master and commander of the far I, side of the world. Like I literally outweigh you by eighty pounds. Is that the only reason? These chairs, these chairs are like typical office chairs. They have a weight rating, and I feel like I'm, I'm right at the top of what these chairs are rated to do. You got the special reinforced one. I did. Well, I reinforced it myself. I actually had to screw in some extra, extra reinforcing steel because I, because I bent it. Um, when this chair finally does come apart, it's going to explode apart. I hope it happens. <laughs> what happens during uh, Omnibus? It's really, it's held together with like surface tension right now. You do many podcasts. Which, which, which of your shows would you like that to happen during? I think it would be very funny here because you would have you you would see it firsthand and you would have some you'd have some great witty and maybe like Chernobyl remarks. there would be early warning and I could get my camera phone out. I just hope it doesn't impale me as it falls. Oh yeah, what a way to a go! Lot of, a lot of bad stuff. No, there. you 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 need to you need to retire to your bees. Thank you. Uh, you can mail us actual things, including if you are so inclined some mid-century modern office chairs that have a weight rating of 250 pounds or greater to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Do you want to see what Patricia sent you? Yeah. Uh, That's cool looking. It's some kind of a coffee table book. Playboy cover to cover the 1950s. Whoa. This was addressed to you. Ken, you don't want to look at that. That's going to corrupt you. It's got... That's going to make you have impure thoughts. Oh, and it's also a digital archive, I see. So it's got a CD-ROM. Well, who has a place to play a CD-ROM? I don't... I don't know, but I mean, they, you, you have a Dell computer. Doesn't it have a CD? It's got instructions for how to in- install this on Windows 2000 or XP. <laughs> Does that help? I don't think I'm going to be able to see this. Is there a book component? Yes, there's also a book. Oh, okay. I, op- I opened the book, and the first thing I saw was a picture of Gene Shalit. Yeah! This must be an era in Playboy when you could actually see... You're allowed to see Gene Shalit's curly hair. Gene Shalit, the hottest of all the playmates. They used to airbrush that out, but... Okay, well, this is a great gift. Thank you. I can't wait to... Oh, look at that. Please please send all your debauched, dirty books to Oh, wait, it's a facsimile of of the original issue of Playboy, which was... Oh, the Marilyn Monroe? Yeah, which was only 50 cents. Look at that. A lot of value. Um, For me, it's Gene Shalit or nothing. You can also, uh, if you don't have a copy of old Playboy magazines uh, and you want to support the show in another way, you can do so by contributing uh, financially to our production at patreon.com slash omnibusproject and reap the many rewards of that contribution, including access to our 
um, to our addenda show, which we put out once a month, and uh, many other rewards besides. Please so, don't make John eBay his skin mags. To so go the show. go to patreon.com slash omnibus project and donate. Thank you. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>